Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy here. Hello there, Earl. Hi, Kieran. No Ken Erty, who is on a post-World Cup break. Before you say it, yes, apparently covering the World Cup does count as work. But quite why he chose to go back to Manaus on holidays, I don't know, Murph. I just, uh, I, you know what really kills me? Yeah. He, he travelled back here first. I mean, what's he doing? Like, doing a, a wash? Still searching for that laptop, I guess. Yeah, is, uh, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I suppose there isn't, there is nothing quite like getting your wash done in your own house. Yeah. You know, your own fabric softener, your own, you know, uh, may, may, you know, your own tumble dryer maybe, you know, just for speed, speed. He doesn't want to be hanging around in Dublin, I suppose. Get back out to Manaus for another two weeks of sweating profusely and then he'll be back to us. This could be confusing. Should we tell people that Ken's not actually in Manaus? No. And no, that he may never be back there again. In his, I, th- I in think his he actually life. told us from Manaus that he would never be back in Manaus ever again. It's also a bit of a downtime in terms of major football news, although the Irish women's under-19s have been flying the flag brilliantly at the European Championships in Oslo. They play Holland in the semi-finals this evening. This is a game that may have been played or maybe being played as you listen to this show. Uh, six o'clock, I think, is the kickoff Irish time. But they put, that's uh, against Holland, they put Sweden to the sword in the in the last group game and shut the mouth of their mouthy manager, the big mouth. Mm. He was mouthing away about uh, Ireland being like a hurling team um, just before losing to them for the second time in recent times. So shut up, Swedish manager. Yeah, I don't know... It's talking smack about both the team and then it, it's supposed to be a bad thing now that they're a hurling team. Also, it's Camogie if it's girls. So, I mean, the guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, quite frankly. The Dutch coach is adding to it as well. He says that, oh yeah, our, this is the most stereotypical thing that every manager at every grade, whether it doesn't matter the gender, the age group, it's always what a foreign manager will say about an Irish team. Well, yeah, they're good, this Irish team. Good kick and rush merchants. Mm. Kick, I think kick um, and rush. Uh, I think the Irish manager likes to think that the team can play a bit of football, but it doesn't really. I suppose 
it's actually fine to get these backhanded compliments from other managers as long as if you're annoying them, you're probably doing something right and they're doing right at the moment. Yeah, and there is the idea that, um, you know, you get a reputation for being an early riser, you can stay in bed all day. I mean, the football that an Irish team would have to play to be recognised as a good passing team would like completely out of this world. <laughs> Brazil, win a world Cup, 1970 yeah. style uh, samba football for for any anyone else from outside of Ireland to give us any credit whatsoever. With Ken away and a bit of space before the start of the Premier League season, we thought it'd be nice to dedicate a few shows this week and next to interviewing some people who we believe are very compelling football characters in Ireland and beyond for that matter. Next Monday, we're going to have a show with one of the all-time greats of broadcasting forget about sports broadcasting this person is one of the great sports one of the great broadcasters I should say anywhere in the world really looking forward to it we'll tell you more about him over the weekend but today we're chatting to an Irish international who made an instant impact in the English game really quick impact played for one of the biggest clubs at the height of one of its probably craziest periods one of only seven Irish footballers to captain a team in an FA Cup final that came a few years later with Cardiff City in 2008, a year after that, he was diagnosed with cancer, but made it back on the pitch. And just this year, he's returned to Dublin to play for Shamrock Rovers. Steve McPhail came to Studio Murph to chat this morning, and we uh, we found him to be a really great interviewee. You really enjoyed the chat. I mean, a, talk about a breadth of experience of the sport, and also outside the sport. The very odd footballer is like Robbie Keane. Super talented, super cocky, big star early on, massive clubs most of the way. And that's it. But a lot of a more typical career is to go through highs and lows. And I think being a, something that came quite clear through this interview, I think, is that being a professional sports person, it's about talent. It's about hard work, both of which Steve McPhail has displayed. But it's about how you deal with setbacks as well, because that's what happens in a career. Homesickness, having to move down divisions, as I mentioned, cancer and other health issues, uh, which thankfully doesn't happen to too many footballers. But things happen and it's how you deal with them that actually will dictate what sort of a successful career you'll have. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a career of unqualified, uninterrupted success is kind of of limited interest to a lot of people in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not something that maybe you can relate to in any way in your own working life or anything like that. Um, and it's nearly a birth. It's nearly taken for granted. You know, the more you win, the more you expect to win, maybe the less excited you get about the, the highs when there are no lows. Um, and I think that the really interesting sports people are the... The, are the people who have actually gone through something, who have actually suffered through something to actually give themselves perspective on what they've achieved because that's the thing lacking, I think, from a lot of uh, sports people is actually perspective. And understandably so, if you're within that bubble and you're yeah. you're having that sort of a life, you probably don't want to open yourself up to the idea of having another perspective, which is yeah. a generalisation on that side of it as you well. You get thankful for the few that you've won. Maybe you lose the edge to keep going for... Uh, medals 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10 maybe Steve McPhail was here a little bit earlier on and we do hope you enjoy the chat I knew the place Clough that he calls me Ravi didn't know them he said to me what can you do that the boss hasn't done you the boss and I said I want to win the league but I want to win it better there's no way to win it, but... Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We don't lost four matches. Then, but that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, that he calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now, that, may, that might be, you know, aiming for utopia, and it might, be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that... 
I want to be like me. I would like to welcome Stephen McPhail into the studio. Stephen, how are you? I'm good, yeah, good, thanks. Uh, the first question is, you lived the guts of 20 years over in the UK. You're now back in Dublin this year. How have you settled in? Yeah, it's been great. Obviously, it's been quite a few months now I'm home, so it's, uh, yeah, settled back into to life quite quite easy, actually. It's been good to see friends, family, and, and all that sort of stuff, so it's good. I get the sense it's not as though you lost touch over the years anyway. You would have been back quite a lot. No, back loads, actually, yeah. It's, uh, especially the, the latter year, too, when the kids moved home. When I left Cardiff and went to school and, and back home, so I was travelling back and forth quite a bit, so that was a big decision for me to come home. I was, I was uh, struggling to to uh, get back every couple of weeks and, and play to a level I wanted to be. I wanted to try and, try and uh, settle back here and try and enjoy my last bit of football. Yeah, so long term, it would, the plan was always for you to come back to Ireland at the end of your career. And I suppose now you have the chance to play and, yeah. and be, be back home. Yeah, that was it, yeah. It was, uh, when I left Cardiff, the kids were just at school age, so it was a big decision where, where they wanted to go to school. And, my wife's from Russia and I'm from Russia. Yeah, they always wanted to come home and let them settle here. So that was a, that was the major factor of me coming back to to play here. Was that uh, tough? Was it a year then you were with Sheffield Wednesday yeah. while while the the kids, your wife and kids, were at home? Yeah. Was that difficult for you? Yeah, that was the that was the, the probably the, the big decision I had to make. You know, I was traveling as I said. I was playing games on a Saturday, traveling from all over England to try and get back to, to, to home to see the kids for a day and then back back again for a week. So it was straining me too much. I didn't enjoy it. Didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't enjoy my football as much as I thought I would and with them not there. So it was uh, yeah, that was probably the, the big decision that, that that I had to make and it was uh, it was made and enjoyed coming coming back now. I'm sure the kids were delighted to have you home. Yeah, yeah. For a yeah, while at least. Yeah, for a while, yeah. It's it's, it's just how it's school holidays, you know, they came over when they could but yeah. It's uh, no, it's not the same seeing them every day and, and getting to bring them to their football and to their to their gymnastics and stuff like that. So it's uh, yeah, it was important. I wanted to be around for them growing up, so that was a, the big decision. They're already keen on sports, then. Yeah, they enjoy it. They love it every day. There's something GAA, there's, <laughs> there's uh, football, there's gymnastics. Every day I'm doing something like a taxi service. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> you left for Leeds. Was it 1995? Yeah, would that be right? Yeah, about 15 right. years of age at the time. Yeah, that's right. Can you remember your first trip over there? I do, yeah. I remember uh, all. Was, I think it was probably four or five of us that left at the same time, and uh, just the 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 sheer um, adrenaline going over there into a big club like that, and um, having to settle, moving into a house with a family, and, and uh, leaving your family and friends and girlfriend at a time. It was just horrendous, you know. I remember that feeling in the stomach waking up that morning, thinking, "Right, this is it. I'm, I'm out of here." So I was there. Uh, yeah, strange feeling. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Did you? I mean, it sounds quite nerve-wracking, really. It, it was. Yeah, it was nervous. Uh, I think you're so young. You probably just get get on with it. You know, I, I got over there and, and uh, it took a couple of weeks where I didn't really settle. I don't think anyone does. I think them first few weeks are the hardest. And uh, I just speaking to my mum and dad and, and everyone, family and friends, every every night for hours and hours and telling them to stick in and keep going. And, yeah, I was delighted I did in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's pre-mobile phone days as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're making these calls yeah. and maybe you feel, even the fact that you don't have a mobile phone, it kind of, yeah. it makes the distance seem a little longer, maybe. It did, you know? yeah. In the digs, funny enough, we had a pay phone. So that's how we, in, in the digs I was at, there was, uh, it was probably seven or eight players in, in the same, living in the same house with the, with the same family. So it was a uh, pay phone at the top of the stairs, never forget it. And we used to fight, fight 
two and nail to get <laughs> yeah, to get yeah, an yeah. hour and, and everyone be waiting, waiting. You finished, you finished. So it was one of them ones. So it was a uh, yeah, it was always it was always difficult uh, time time for going over as a young lad. So I know it's know it's all about really. Yeah, and and so the loneliness was a big thing. But was when you're 15 and heading over like that, you kind of have to have a, a bulletproof confidence nearly in your own ability. Was that affected at all? I mean, did you all think you were going to make it? No, no, because it's just when I got over there, it was such an eye-opener. You know, we went through pre-season day two of being over there and being sick, being thrown up and from runs. And I just, I did at some stage think, is this, am I cut out for this? Am I strong enough to get through this? But and the coaches and the staff and everyone over there just try and, try and build you up and try and keep you there for that first year especially. Um, and I did get through that and... Lucky enough, within a couple of years, I was in the first team, and I never imagined that going over there at 15. Really, it was special. Yeah. Your rise through the ranks there, I guess, uh, was pretty quick. Stephen, you got into the first team, as you say, and a lot of things were happening at the club at that time. A lot of good things. I mean, this was it's a big club in England anyway, but this was probably the most exciting time there since the 1970s. Uh, everyone looks back now, and it seems so obvious that maybe uh, the, the club overreached and all these things were going on, but. Did you feel like you're actually at the start of something huge there, something long term for Leeds? Um, which I, t- I think when I broke in, obviously George Graham was the manager, and <clears throat> um, they didn't have a great season f- before um, the time I broke in. So it was like expectation in the club, as it is such a big club. But um, yeah, we sort of he sort of he left, and then Dave O'Leary came in and gave all a U team a chance, and it was it was special. It was uh, I think there was six, maybe seven of us made it. At debuts and within a year of each other, and, and we all came through together, and, and we were doing well, we were winning games, and, and we just sort of kicked on from there. And, and within a couple of years, we were buying big names to add to the squad, and things were were going ridiculously well. We we never thought that would happen, but uh, it just gave us that belief that we we could we could step from a U team level, which we had such a great U team and a lot of good players that that have made over the years and, and done really well, but. Just gave us that platform, I think, in a base of six, seven players that have been there, knows the club inside out, and and they added to that. And yeah, financially it went went up in the air after a couple of seasons, but they were, they were amazing times. After four or five years that they're playing Champions League, Euro, Europa League semi-finals, finishing probably I think we were toured in the Premiership, and just missing missing out that year was was a bit of disappointment and that sort. Of, Put put the put the club at a bit of a wobble then, yeah. Yeah, do particular games stick out for you in the Champions League? Yeah, is it, is it's just loads. It's yeah, just so many. It was, uh, obviously, I, I made my debut. I think um, at Forest. Um, I think it was no Leicester, and then I played for my first start was at Forest, and then we went on the Tuesday after the Forest game. I never forget it. Went to play Roma in the Olympic Stadium, and I never thought for one minute that I was playing. I just thought he'd take me out you know <laughs> I just started my first game done alright we got result at Forest and um, the, the Roma game he, he, he didn't pick the team for a couple of hours before the game in the hotel so I was quite relaxed and that wasn't going to be starting I just thought when he said just turned 18 here there's no way he's going to throw me into this one and he did and it was like oh no here we go we were uh, uh, Totties and all these players were playing for Roma and uh, down from the Olympic Stadium, but the dressing rooms are right behind one of the goals, and it's the longest tunnel of your life. It's like you have walked halfway around the right, pitch yeah. to get to get out on the pitch. So that was a, it was the longest walk in my life. Looking at these players beside me, thinking, right, I've got 
got to step up to this. So I was there. So, so that that game um, is a big, big memory of how I remember how how I dealt with it. And, um, how did you deal with that? I don't know. I don't really know. I think I only I had a couple of hours to to think about it and uh, to go out there and perform packed, packed uh, Olympic Stadium in Rome. It was, it was brilliant. I enjoyed every minute of it. Played the whole game and 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 stayed in the team from then on, which was which was great. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I think as a young lad, you just sort of try and concentrate on your first touch and the ball, and then make your first tackle. You sort of ease yourself into it and think you're still in the pitch here. It's the same same size it was in the youth team a couple of weeks ago. So I think that's what you got to try and try and relax and play your normal game. It maybe helped, as you say, that there were a bunch of young guys yeah, at the time as well. There was, and that, that was a big, big factor. Like I think there was in that game, there was maybe three or four of us playing. And we're not long in the team, so that helped us a lot. We, we all lived together. We all had two years of YTS together, um, which means being around each other constantly, 24 hours a day. So we knew each other inside out. So uh, that helped helped go on to pitch now and as a sort of lads in that in that mode as well. In retrospect, mm. with the strength of the, those young players, do you think that maybe Leeds could have got to where they got to? a little bit more slowly and if they had done it that way that may if they didn't actually need to go out and buy all those players sure they got to the Champions League semi-finals and all happened so fast but there could have actually been something really good built there and something sustainable if they just relaxed a little bit and just trusted you guys I think so I think if they had it well obviously I'd say that but I do I, I did think we had the, the crop of a really good bunch that just needed as you said just time to develop and uh, Manager did come. Uh, lady did go out and buy huge, huge names, and obviously stretched the budget to 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 mad to mad uh, figures. But I think if if we had a bit more time, we we did. Don't get me wrong, we we had four or five seasons where we yeah we all done really well together. But if we had it, it was quite intense after a season of us doing okay. And that's all it was doing okay. We qualified for Europe, don't got to the semi final the the Europa League as it is now and. Then all of a sudden next season we were buying huge players for huge money and we were sort of putting the bench, coming on, coming on and and but it was just it just happened so quick, but I suppose that's a gamble that they took and, and it didn't really pay off. You had some injury problems, you ultimately left Leeds and moved down the divisions to Barnsley. Was I suppose a career can go one of two ways at that stage. You can you can go down and you you, you can stay down or you can actually you can fight it out. Were you really determined around that time of your career that I've got it. I've got it in me here to yeah. keep going. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was it was a big decision actually. I didn't. I, I could have stayed for another year, but I wanted to get out and play. And it was Barnsley was just down the road from from Leeds, and it was obviously a League One club. And Andy Ritchie was as a manager, and I went to meet him and had great chats with him. And he just uh, sold it to me really of coming and got and uh, playing. Paul Art was there originally, but he didn't. He wasn't there too long, which which I knew through the to the youth system at Leeds, but. Yeah, we had a great year there. We had an amazing year. We we got promoted, uh, beat Swansea in the playoff final at Millennium Stadium, which is a another great great uh, game mm-hmm. that I remember. And uh, yeah, enjoyed the year. I was obviously close to signing there and staying, but um, Cardiff came in and made the decision to, to move on. Really, had that was it a classic case uh, that year, Barnsley of the silky, skillful Premier League midfielder having to learn to toughen up down the divisions. It was, definitely was. I had a few. Uh, Games where it didn't go so well down there, and I had to change my game a bit. But I enjoyed it, and really enjoyed it. Great, with a load of young lads. It was wasn't any any 
big time Charlies. It was just lads that wanted to come in and work hard and get up the division, and that was I enjoy it. I love coming in, training every day, and that's what I'm all about. Trying to get in a group um, that I wanted to do well. And, Lucky enough, we've we done it in the, in the uh, playoff final, which is the best way to go. It's interesting because this is a theme. I remember at the time, uh, while you were still with Leeds, that people looked at you, and I, I think George Graham compared you to Liam Brady and the skill level that you had, and everyone was aware of that. But it was almost, the, the comments were made that maybe you would come along at a time when managers were looking for a different type of midfielder. It was all box to box. It was all this kind of thing. Maybe it's changing again now because you see the likes of Pirlo and stuff. Yeah. Uh, players like him uh, doing what he does in the international stage. Would you Were you aware of that kind of perception that you were skillful but you weren't the athletic type that yeah. people were looking for? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think you get scrutinised over there so much. Um, that's what, what, what happens. You, you get looked at as one player that we always had something that you need to work on and um, George Graham made me work in that constantly, day in, day out. Staying back after and doing defensive drills that would do your head in. I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't that my type of game, but it brought me on as a player. And um, I owe quite a lot to him in terms of going forward and, and how much I, I grew up and, and learned the ugly side of the game, if, if that's what, what people call it. But uh, yeah, I enjoy playing football, enjoy getting on the ball, but I think I've got a bit more over the last seven, eight years of my career. I can mix it a bit now, which is which is good. It's funny because I was looking at the caps one, but you've ten international caps yeah. uh, between yourself and I'm just going to throw you in with other skillful midfielders here. But Andy Reid and Wes Hoolahan, these are guys that I think a lot of f- football fans would accept are, are creative sort of players and certainly made their name in that way. Uh, the three of you have 54 caps in total, which doesn't seem like a massive amount. Uh, do you think that? A perception in some cases there, I suppose Trapattoni was a manager, so that doesn't necessarily help matters for, for that kind of a player. But does a perception um, maybe of a, a skillful sort of a midfielder almost mitigate against what people are looking for? Does it kind of harm an international career to be seen as the skillful guy as opposed to the box to box guy? Maybe in that, in that time, as I said, when, when I was playing for Ireland, it was, it was the box to box, Vieira, PT, all these people were, doing, were at the top of the game, so you looked at that sort of level but now as you said you've mentioned a few there and Pirlo and stuff so I think football does go in cycles there's a lot of formations keep coming and going when I started off it was it was a diamond being used now it's coming back and it's, it's football does go in cycles just depending on what player you have and what player you want to get the best out of I think um, yeah I was probably disappointed not to add to 10 caps but had some great players that, that played in my position Roy Keane etc so can't complain too much, but yeah, I would love love them to play a bit more. Yeah, the Keane and Vieira were nearly the they were the prototype midfielders, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they kind of dominated the they dominated the games they were playing in, but they also dominated how people viewed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's hundred percent right. Yeah, that's how the people viewed how the midfielder should be back then, and that's. But I, I don't know. I've, I've I always thought that you could you could play with, with someone beside beside that type <laughs> that can play, they can pick a pass or get in the ball and start things off from the back. So I think you're seeing a bit more of that nowadays. Well, the criticisms I guess of the Irish system now is that maybe creative players aren't being produced, highly technical players aren't being produced. I mean, back you were part of the 1998 under 18 squad that won the European Championship, and there were plenty of players in it who could who could play football. Then is that something that you notice with Irish players that these sort of players aren't being created in the way they used to? Definitely, yeah. I think it's it's um, I don't know what it is. I can't put your finger on. We could be here all day talking about 
about what, what we should do and how we could make our game a bit more technical and a bit more skillful and better to watch. Um, I've been back in the league of Ireland for whatever it is, five, six months now, and it does it. it you see games where you think, what was that all about? It was, it was quite being bang bosh sort of games, and it's not much getting the ball on the ground trying trying to perform. Um, I don't know. You got to start really young again. I think you got to go right back to the eight, seven, eight-year-olds and, and try and build and build them and, and give them the techniques and give them all that stuff that, that they need. I don't think you can pick up a fifteen, sixteen-year-old now and, and tell them how to pass a ball. I tell them show them some vision, show them a, a, a touch you can you can work on. You can work on it, but I think it's got to be drilled back into to them them younger age groups. You moved to Cardiff City, as you mentioned. I get the sense you, for the most part, anyway, you, you really loved your time there. I loved it. It was brilliant. Uh, great, special place. It just as soon as I walked in the door, I felt wanted and uh, had a great rapport with the the fans. Um, and yeah, seven years was special. Seven years. I mean, it's a long time for yeah. anyone to play any part of the career. But you said straight away you walked in and yeah, something about it. Yeah, just. I just suited it. I think they enjoyed the way I played. They enjoyed watching me. I enjoyed playing for them. The crowd were special. Ninian Park was special to play in. It was hostile coming down and played there for Leeds back in the day when they were down the down divisions and we were top of the Premier League and they beat us. And, uh, it was just incredible atmosphere. Probably one of the, right. the, the best I've ever, ever felt. And I, um, I always remember that. And when, when they came to speak to me when I was at Barnsley about signing... I was always in the back of my mind that they're mad down there. I'd enjoy that. I think yeah. I enjoy playing in front of that. It's good to have them on your yeah, side yeah, as yeah, opposed to against you. And yeah. you went all the way to an FA Cup final, captain Carter from that Cup final yeah. uh, against Portsmouth. I know you lost that match, but are you at a point now where you can look back with happy memories of that day? I know yeah. it goes against the competitive footballer instinct. but Yeah, well, it was. We played against an unbelievable Portsmouth team that day. Is the, the team, David James, you got... Uh, Glenn Johnson, you had Distan, you had Carneal, you had the RM midfield, I went on to Ryan, but it was just the team was, was unbelievable. Cronk, yeah, could go on all day about the team he played against. So, And we were so disappointed that we didn't win because of the way we played and the way we performed. We fancied that, that in the game that we had a chance at half time. We spoke about we just need one chance, just need one chance. We feel we're well in this game, you know, and then to go out the way we did, a mistake from our keeper. Just drop the ball. It can happen to anyone, and, and and that was just a disappointment the way we went out that way. But uh, yeah, looking back, that run was was amazing. It was the uh, first time for a long, long time a championship club got anywhere near it. So we were delighted. Looking back now, it's a special day. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about walking out the tunnel at the Olympic Stadium in Italy. Like yeah. walking out the tunnel, you know, in an FA Cup final day is, you know for guys our age I suppose it's yeah. like the game that was on TV before sort of Sky yeah, Sports yeah. came on or whatever like that like that image of walking out you know behind your manager for the FA Cup final I mean that's just that's kind of schoolboy yeah. dream stuff really it is special it was it was the whole day especially you wake up and it's coverage over there you know, that we see here it's just constantly about the game and it starts I think the kick off is at 3 and it starts at 11 in the morning whatever it is and goes through the coach goes through the trip, yeah, pre-match, there's cameras everywhere. It's just special. It's something that you, it's sort of hazy at the time because there's so much going on. You're trying to concentrate in the game. But looking back now, it was, it was unbelievable feeling standing at the tunnel, looking out at that packed stadium. It's probably, the, for me, one of the best stadiums in the world at the moment. And 
um, just going out there and, and standing there in front of them, knowing all the whole of rushes in the crowd. It was, it was uh, special. I enjoyed it. How many people did you say you had? Oh, over? it was ridiculous. I think I had what did I have ninety something tickets to get. So <laughs> that was just family and friends. So uh, <laughs> that was, was a hell of a lot more, I'd say, from rushing. You did well because Roy yeah. Keane always talks about always when his autobiography talked about it, the nightmare of tickets on Cup Final Day. Oh, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it was an absolute nightmare. I just. I left it, me, to be fair, my best mate took over to leave it with me, I'll sort it out. So <laughs> he just kept ringing me, telling me the numbers, and I just I'd put my order in and just add it up. But he'd, he'd, go, he'd, he'd deal with it all and, and sort it all out, fair play to It must be such a surreal kind of a build up the way you describe it there, because I, I guess as a professional footballer, you, you have your routines, whether mm. it's a home match or an away match, there are certain things that you do, and there's no extra pressures on top of that. Whereas you're coming into this and it's almost like a standalone event. It's a totally different kind of occasion. It is, yeah. It's it's, it's a totally different. The week building up to it's just madness, you know. We've we've we we done a song. We made made a song. We went to recording studios. It was just like it was just so much going on that week. Do you have a press day, which is just total press everywhere, and you've got hours upon hours talking the same same uh, questions, same answers. So yeah, it, it's just something surreal. Something probably that you. You're lucky to experience. I don't think many do in their career. So certainly not many Irishmen have captained the FA Cup teams uh, mm-hmm. fin- in finals of FA Cup matches. Those pre-match interviews, I guess, you're just trying not to say anything that will wind yeah. up the opposition. Exactly. <laughs> just, just try to be as bland as possible <laughs> yeah, yeah. here and don't say anything. Trying to be boring. That's, what, that's, that's what was <laughs> Did you have much it. of a uh, yeah. much of a contribution to the club song? And no, no, I stayed well away. Oh, I had the yeah, I guess the chorus. I thought as captain you'd have to step up. No, 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 no. We, we had a, a lad, Stephen Thompson, who was great in the guitar. Oh, yeah. He wrote a song for that day, so he he took all the limelight, which is he, he deserved that after what you done. So you're a young man on top of your game at that stage, Stephen. I would assume that your health is something that you probably just took for granted, like most of us do. Oh, definitely, yeah. I, was, I think that season uh, I got diagnosed. Uh, with lymphoma, I had played fifty six games or something. I couldn't have been any fair. Started fifty something four games out of fifty six or something. So it was felt as good as gold, as good as it could ever be. And then for someone to tell you tell you that was was a bit shocking. All right, I'd imagine so. I mean, you, you had you'd noticed a lump. That's how. Yeah, I had a lump just under my jaw, a small little lump that I spoke to the doctor, the club doctor about, and um, we went to see a specialist, and he said. I'd leave it, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's probably just an infection. Still had it, a few months later I went to see someone else, they said leave it, it's fine, it doesn't look out in surreal. Our club doctor kept, he wasn't sure, he just kept hitting home, went to see someone else and he said take it out, so as we took it out that's what it was, so we're blessed really. Right, so it was taken out and then... Yeah, then, then you confirmed, diagnosed. yeah, down a couple of about, I think it was about... Two, three weeks later, you find out the results, and they told me it was cancerous, so I had to go. That was sort of a life changer yeah. again. What was your reaction at the time? I was just shocked. I was just like, right, what do we do? What do we have to do? It was, um, I didn't want to miss any football. I took it out in the, had the operation in the international break, and if probably if we didn't have that international break, I probably would have left it, to be honest. I wouldn't have, I would have just gone on with it. and maybe took it out in the summer or spoke to someone else or maybe still would have just left it. So I feel blessed that international break was there, took it out, had the had the confirmation what it was and then went 
went and just had me treatment and just got my head down and got through it. Am I right in saying you, you had another week then just before you found out the extent of it and whether it had spread and it turned out that it was um, it was what it was and you could deal with that? Yeah. So you had a, you had a week? I had of, a week. I played two games yeah. in that week and it was I was just waiting. I, I didn't think anything of it. They told me it was cancerous, so I played the second game. I knew I had to go through some treatment in, in probably the week after, but I felt fine, I felt fit, so I wanted to play. The manager knew, the club doctor did, and no one else did, but I just sort of got through the games, enjoyed it, but got injured, which I thought was at the time was um, strange. I pulled my quad muscle off the bone in the, in the game. Right. So I was like, Jesus, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I've just been diagnosed with cancer and I pulled my quad muscle off the bone. But in, in hindsight, it was a, it's a massive... It was a massive thing for me to focus on getting my, my quad fixed while going through my radiotherapy and stuff like that. So I had something else to focus on, and yeah. I really do think that was a blessing in the skies, really. God, because I actually thought you were going to say there that the the quad muscle allowed you time to... That injury allowed you time to get you know the cancer thing sorted out, whereas it was actually kind of... It was the, the other way around. Way around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went... And done me. I came home for my treatment. I had it in the matter down the road, and uh, I had a actually the physio now at, at Shamrock uh, Rovers, Tony McCarthy. Um, that I know well. He's from Swords, not far from me, um, and he's he's got part of the Irish team set up as well. He uh, he rehabbed me quad for me, so I done, I done went to every morning. I went to DCU, seen him for a couple of hours, done me rehab with him, um, done all the hard stuff to try and get back fit. And then in the afternoons went and had me radiotherapy in, in uh, Matter and, and drove home. So that was my day routine for six, eight weeks. So it was it was good to, to come through it okay. It sounds like, <clears throat> I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you almost brought the professional sports person's discipline to dealing with the cancer. It's, it, you, it was a massive shock and then it's right, what are the steps? How, what, what, is it almost like, what sort of training do I have to yeah, do? What are the steps? It's exactly what, how, how, I don't know why I reacted like that. My dad was with me at the time and, just he says to me now that it was a weird way of dealing with it. But I just wanted to be back on the pitch as quickly as possible, and, and uh, I was I just knew the doctors just kept saying you're, you're quite lucky we've got this quite early, so believe in us that you'll be okay if you if you get through this treatment okay, and you'll come out and you'll be strong and you'll be okay. So I did believe in them. I was probably the luck, one of the lucky ones. I was stage one, not stage yeah. two, three down the line. So. Um, yeah, got on with it, got my head down and got back on the pitch quite quick. You sound like, so you do hear people talk about this sort of thing, putting football in perspective or sport or whatever it might be, but it, it does seem that maybe the football was so important to you that it's in perspective, but it's still, it was still in your head the whole time. That you yeah, it was a drive for me, it was a drive, because we were, we were going well in the league and I didn't want to miss out. I knew if I could get back before the end of the season, I had a chance of playing in some big games that were in the playoff, we got to the playoffs and... I was lucky enough to get back in and play the last tr- three months of the season unscathed and enjoyed it. And I was just happy to be back. It was, it was a horrible couple of months, not being able to eat, not being able to drink too much. Just my throat was in uh, from the from the treatment wasn't too good. A Christmas yeah. dinner didn't go down well, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got through. I was I was lucky enough to. I was just as I, f- I feel blessed, like doing the lucky ones. I, I've, I was in in the in the ward with people that were, were 
not as lucky as I was, really. Yeah, no, you mean you got back healthy, which is the key thing, and you got back playing football, and you got back playing football at a very high level as well. Uh, in the meantime, you have had another health issue, Sjogren's syndrome. Um, maybe you can explain first of all what exactly that is, what effect that has on you. Yeah, it's it's a it's an autoimmune disease, and and that's where where the the lump it usually happens. You know, I've done it the other way around. You usually, find you've got Sjogren's, and then down the years it could come to to a lymphoma like I have so I've done it the opposite way around which is baffling a bit for the doctors but right. um, yeah so that's when I was diagnosed shortly after uh, the, the lump that I, what I had so it's just a, it's just an autoimmune disease um, that attacks the glands and attacks um, everything really your whole body in terms of joints and, and, and all that sort of stuff and infl- inflammatory stuff so I've got a go through a course of treatment that I'm still going through um, every six months, well hopefully a year this year coming up, that I have um, back in the UK and I go to the hospital for a day and, and go on a drip and, and, and get uh, spend six, seven hours in there and it seems to be working, it's, it's been great so far, I've been able to live a long life, um, I have a flare up now and again but very rarely, every once every three, four, four, four months and uh, I can deal with that in terms of just rest a couple of days and, and go on some antibiotics and, and steroids seems to calm that down. Has that affected your career at all? Um, it has. It, it did at the start because they couldn't, they couldn't work out how to treat it. And uh, I had to go to LA to see a specialist um, through Venus Williams, lucky enough, is, is, is also a Shergan's patient. Yeah, I've read I got to this. speak got, with her. Yeah. yeah, it was mad one night. <laughs> I got my phone rang in Cardiff and, and she, she, she was on the other end of the line. I was like... It was set up through my agent, got in contact with her agent, and um, we had a great chat for an hour on the phone about how she deals with it and, and what sort of treatment she was having. And she sent me to the world, the biggest um, specialist in the world, in the LA, and put me in contact with him. So I had a, a week over there with him, and he, he gave me some treatment to deal that I'm still having now, and it seems to be working. So only for her, I probably would have been well retired by now was that another strange moment yeah another strange moment of the life of me <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was strange I, I couldn't believe it I thought it was a wind up when she, she was on the other end of the phone in the house so she was lovely she was straight down the line telling me how she dealt with it and how she could still play tennis at such a good level so um, told me not to worry about it go and see this boy gave me his details gave me his name and got me an appointment got me everything sorted and within within a few days of speaking to her, I was over there, so it was it was quick, happened quick, and um, lucky enough, yeah, it's it's been working. Yeah, just another Irish sportsman whose uh, career was saved by Venus Williams. I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah. they must be they're always in the here, these guys. I'm always interested in how other footballers view these kind of things. Is it because I guess if you, if you miss a training session, if you've got a hamstring injury, if you, as you say, if you pull your your quad muscle off practically, it's yeah, that that's understandable something that it's tangible for footballers but when they found out that you I don't know if you had to miss any any training sessions or any games for treatment for this Sjogren's uh, syndrome did, did it take a lot of explaining to teammates did they understand what you were going through um, no not really I, just, I didn't really I just used to speak with a doctor and a physio and the manager and I tried to keep the lads out but it's not like if they say where where you I just say oh, a bit of treatment today yesterday that was it don't really go into detail. Would you be worried quite, about it slightly? Uh, no, 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 no. The lads are they were good as gold. It's just, per, it's just a personal yeah, issue. It's a per, yeah, yeah okay. there's, there's loads. Like, I've got, we train with lads every day that can't train. 
they can't go out on the pitch physically and train every day so because they've got an issue with a knee or so there's there's loads of other stuff he can do he can do yoga and stuff like that so there's people that, that are a lot uh more these days are, are into stuff like that and, and don't train physically on the pitch and can train physically on the pitch four or five days a week because they will performance on a Saturday or a Friday night whenever it is won't be as good so no no they were fine the lads were good Steve you don't sound like the kind of person to feel too sorry for yourself so once you got back uh, you know you got back to as I said a great level you helped your team get to a League Cup final against Liverpool um was it just a case of looking back now and playing? Forget about it. Yeah, did you, I did. I did. I, 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 getting back was sort of a. I wanted a, not a closure, just something to say. Right, I'm, I'm fit now. I'm like all these other ten players in the, on my team. There was so much talk about it over there in the papers. That am I going to retire? Am I going to do this? Am I? Gonna, I just wanted to get back in the pitch and just say, "Here I am. I'm ready to go again." So, and that that was seemed to be, seemed to be what happened. Yeah. Sort of got back and just played and played and showed people I could play week in, week out and everything would be okay. It makes sense and I know I, I, we mentioned about the perspective in football and of course playing football isn't the be all and end all but when you've gone over as a 15 year old you've made it over there as a career you've, you've brought I'm sure your friends and family a lot of pride through that as well it's, but you probably identify yourself as a footballer so yeah. it's, it's an important part of who you are at the moment. Yeah and you got to make the most of it it's like I'm, I'm coming to the back end of it now I'm 34 Um and I don't want to give up just for the sake of giving up. It's not. It's not what. I, it's not what I want to do. It's not what I did. Why I got into this whole game. It's, I love it. You know, I mean, I'm going to play as long as I can. And anyone I speak to who's retired say the same things. Don't, don't think you're giving up unless you, your body tells you enough's enough. So I'll keep going as long as I can. Was it always going to be Shamrock Rovers once you decided you were going to come home? Yeah, yeah. Sport Shamrock Rovers as a kid. Um, some family links there. yeah family my granddad um, worked for the club physio and all that sort of stuff so I travelled all over the country to watch them back when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 all the way through so it's the only club for me back here it's uh, special yeah look, that's that's what I want to do I want to try and try and win something for him he, he's not with us anymore but he's a special man and gave me gave me great years watching supporting such a good club yeah the various illnesses don't seem to have affected your mindset at all but was was there a part of it that said right well you know I have been I have been sick I've been lucky in that respect and that I've you know diagnosed early and taken care of it and came out the other end did coming back to Ireland did any of that have any sort of a say in that I mean did you kind of say right well I got lucky there this is why I want to live the rest of my life or you know do, did you think about it in in that kind of way um, not really no because I don't know what's going to happen next season it's not it's not it's not if I'm I'd love to be at Shamrock Rovers, but I tell you, if it's something came in and, and, and something's and I had to go somewhere else, I'd, I'd probably do it. If something tiddled my boat, really, if, if I felt, I, f- I still feel hungry, I still feel I'm capable of performing on the pitch. So, um, it, w- it wasn't it wasn't so much that it was just that at the time I wasn't comfortable in what was it, what I was doing and what how I was performing over there, traveling and just I wasn't doing things right. So I, w- I didn't want to do that to myself. For another couple of years, just to take the money and, and, and not perform properly, I wanted to make sure I could train properly, come in every day, work hard like everyone else does, to get the right rest. I wasn't taking the right rest. I was jumping on planes, and and, and it wasn't wasn't right what I was doing really. So that was the decision I made for this season to come back and and, and have a go over here. 
Rovers are playing Drada tomorrow night. Yeah. You picked up a suspension, unfortunately, yeah, a few so weeks yeah, back. Something I'm not quite proud of a couple of weeks ago uh, against Pats. I just lost my head for a second. And uh, yeah, got four game banned. So I'm coming to the end of that. Hopefully, Friday will be, but it is the last one. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the pitch. Yeah, itching to get back at this stage, yeah. I'm sure. Stephen, if. Uh, you were told at 15 years of age, heading over on that first trip to Leeds, that this is the career and the life that you've yeah. had. <laughs> what do you think you would have said? No, there's no, there's no way. I could never. I feel so blessed and lucky um, and delighted to have, to have done what I've done. Um, I would have snapped your hand off with half, half of what I could have done. So I'm delighted to be coming to towards the back end of it. And, Hopefully there's a few more years left of me yet. Absolutely. Well, listen, Steve McPhail, it's been great having you. Really do appreciate you talking so openly about all that. Thanks very much. Thanks, lads. Thank you. That was Stephen McPhail. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did. It's incredible how much the need to play football seemed to sustain him during the health problems. He said that, well, he was still in that week where he was waiting to find out the full diagnosis, waiting to find out if it had spread, waiting to find out all these incredibly serious things he's out there playing football well up until the point that he he rips a quad muscle and has to get that scene to but it certainly uh, it was an interesting take on it was an interesting experience that he had the we mentioned before the interview Murph about how he the breadth of experience that he has had and and dealing with the setbacks and I uh, I think that did come across but the point you made to him about just the actual achievements that he had captaining a team in an FA Cup final it really is the thing that when we were younger you you talked about the uh, actually leading them out. He mentioned the bus journey or the, the pre-match stuff. Mm. That's what I always remember about those cup finals for some reason, more so than actually the captain leading the team out. It's all, it's the the preamble to it and the, uh, as opposed remember to the match the, itself. You know? uh, on the BBC coverage, they always used to have one player, it was often the captain, not always though, I yeah. think, doing the, like answering questions about all of his teammates and stuff like that. Just like crazy, stupid stuff that you actually don't get. But it's it all brings it home to you that the fact that FA, the FA Cup final day and it is you know probably has been diminished over the last couple of years or whatever but that's what it is in people's minds that's FA Cup final day is four or five hours of non-stop build up and crazy talk but can you imagine how big that was in Cardiff for a start and probably in Portsmouth too mm. also for the players family friends and families the amount of people coming over from Rush that Stephen talked about yeah. there is absolutely extraordinary I know Roy Keane talked about in his book as I mentioned there as being basically a pain in the arse now most footballers again we were talking at the start of the show about the Roy Keanes who've had these great careers but uh, and largely uninterrupted success certainly from a, a certain point on in Keane's case but most people can't pick and choose the big big moments they're involved yeah. in and an FA Cup final I think to most people is very different to how Roy Keane would have viewed FA Cup finals. Yeah, and you look at the the list of Irishmen who've captained a team on on like for an FA Cup final. Billy Gillespie was a guy from Donegal from County Donegal who captained Sheffield United in nineteen twenty five in the FA Cup final. Then after that it's Johnny Carey, Manny Idol legend, Noel Cantwell, Pat Rice, Ronnie Whelan, Roy Keane. That's a pretty good list. Mm. That's a pretty pretty sweet list for uh, for Stephen to be on. We have another big interview for you next Monday. Uh, real broadcasting hero of ours of mine certainly I'm going to say of ours I think this yeah, guy you can you can call it not actually well he would I don't think he'd be associated with football specifically in people's minds but we will we'll give you the footballing background to the story because there very much is a connection there and we'll do all that for you on Monday looking forward to that one greatly there's another show out there for you today Paul Kimmage and Adrian McCarthy were here Adrian is the director of Rough Rider the documentary that's going to be on next Monday night the doc on Paul and his 
I suppose his history within cycling and uh, his drive, his reasoning for pursuing the story of doping in cycling. There's amazing footage over the last couple of years. There's obviously some great, great archive and it's brilliantly put together. Uh, it's fascinating. I'm sure you all have a an, uh, a, an opinion on Paul Kimmage now and you probably be predisposed towards that opinion as you watch the documentary. So it may change your mind. It may not, but it's really, uh, really worth watching. That's on Monday and definitely have a listen to Paul and Adrian speaking about that if you want to get a bit of a taster for it. In the meantime, I just want to thank you for listening to Steve McPhail today and for listening to the two of us. Thank you, Murph. Thank you, Owen. We'll chat to you again soon. Take care. The second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.